Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. God, come and speak. Open us up to your word. Um, Rod, thanks for uh, welcoming us into Advent this morning by lighting the candles and leading us in prayer and hearing a bit of Isaiah 40. Today is the second Sunday in Advent. I gave a significant introduction, an invitation into Advent, so I'm not going to repeat last Sunday's message. You can go hunt it down. But I will say simply, Advent is a Latin word that means coming or arrival, but it's more than a word. For Christians, Advent is a season, but it's more than a season. In truth, none of the themes or invitations of Advent are limited to this moment in the year. None of them expire on Christmas morning. This is something that just struck me this week. Hope isn't something just for Advent or that we need only in Advent. Lament isn't something that we feel and give voice to only in Advent. Longing, peace, anticipation, waiting, aren't just Advent experiences or invitations. They are with us in every season of the Christian life. These are just core Christian realities. But in the grace of God, the church has a season called Advent that seeks to awaken us year after year to these very real needs, hungers, longings. To hope again. To lament and cry out where we feel and know the brokenness of the world. To rejoice where we have experienced something of God's mercy and kindness and inbreaking, to wait, and not alone, but together. But one of the Advent themes that we are likely to miss in our day and age, especially, I think, is the invitation to prepare. Now, some of you might say, really? Christmas is all about preparation, right? And we feel that. Some of us feel the fact that we haven't done the preparation yet. Some of us are so caught up in the midst of it. Some of us are not coming to soup and bunch because we need to run off and prepare some things. Preparing for house guests that are coming, preparing for festivities of Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, making sure that we have everything, preparing our post-Christmas fitness regime so we can work off all of the Christmas indulgence and feasting. Honestly, this season feels often so busy, right? That is the word that describes that we often say, how's it going? Oh, so busy. It's Christmas. So busy. Busy with preparations, getting ready for all the events, aching for something to be done, preparing for what's coming, or all of the above. Some of us love it. Some of us hate it. Some of us both, right? Uh, That's just the reality of the Christmas season. But Advent invites us to a different kind of preparation for a different kind of arrival. And our guide in this is one of the less obvious Advent voices, John the Baptist. When we think of Advent, our minds often run to Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Magi and shepherds and angels 
But John the Baptist is considered one of the central Advent prophets. In truth, the lectionary readings uh, for this day, the second Sunday of Advent, read by churches of many traditions all across the globe today, are focused on the ministry and message of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, Luke 3, and then the places in Isaiah in particular that Matthew, that John is referencing. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Matthew chapter 3, or your Bible app. Does anyone have that sound effect yet? The, the Bible app opening? Oh, no one got it? Okay, that's good. We talked about this. Not there yet. Do we have any app developers? Or sound effect developers? That'd be good. Okay, another day. Um, all right, I'll read it for us. I'm reading from the NIV. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, God is about to show up on the scene, so get ready. Turn to God, and not just with your thoughts, but with your life. Turn to God, repent, get things in order. And then Matthew, the gospel writer, explains, verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, read for us this morning already by Rod. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Matthew was quoting Isaiah 40, uh, not just read for us this morning already, but uh, Gary Bennett, who came and spoke a month or six weeks ago, spoke on this very text for us, where Isaiah announces to a people discouraged, living in a long chapter of exile, God announces to them through Isaiah the good news that God has not forgotten his people, nor is done with his people. God is coming to his people coming to rescue them, coming to restore them. And it's a coming for which they, God's people, need to get ready. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Isaiah 40 says. I love how Matthew, the gospel writer, in naming the source of John's message is simply repeating himself to us, drilling home the heartbeat of John's message. The king is coming. The king is coming. Repent, prepare, get ready. Side note, this is why the candles are purple, or at least supposed to be purple. They are here. Your candles, if you have Advent candles, might be other colors. But traditionally, in the season of Advent, churches that live in the liturgical calendar have liturgical colors. And the liturgical colors of Advent are purple, symbolizing two things. One, royalty. Two, repentance. We might not pair those two together, but we do. Why? Because the king is coming. So get ready. Matthew 3 continues, verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is one of those verses that we easily blow past. I often do because we are necessarily maybe caught up trying to discern what is the big deal? What is John's message? But it's no, no, worth noting the response in John's day. People came from all over. 
And not just to hear John, but to respond with confession expressed through baptism, which was a radical statement for an ethnic Jew. Because ethnic Jews, Israelites, do not need to be baptized. They've already gone through the waters in the Exodus when Israel walked through the Red Sea. Only converts to Judaism have to be baptized. So this response, people coming out, many coming out to hear John's message and to submit to baptism was a profound personal and public statement, right? A profound admission to their peers, a confession of a need for forgiveness, renewal, rescue. And it's not just a few people, but we're told it's many And not just from one corner of the cultural landscape, not just from that one church of people over there. This reference in the next verse to the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming tells us that people were coming from the whole spectrum of life. The Pharisees and Sadducees paired together is like saying the radical left and the radical right, all coming down to the river. Whatever we make of this, whatever John in a moment will make of this, The undeniable reality is that in John's announcement, many, many had a deep sense something was happening. God was doing something. Something new was happening in their day. Something they had been waiting for, praying for, crying out for, for centuries. But as N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, describes, they knew in their bones that they weren't ready for God's coming back. And so they came from all over, and not just to listen and hear, but to repent, to prepare, to make straight their paths, that God's long-awaited coming would mean life for them. And we need to pause here for a second to acknowledge this was not the only possible response, right? John could have come out out into the wilderness, declaring this news, and people flipped the channel, went back to their smartphones to play the next game. They could have hid. They could have avoided John and what was going on with John. They could have ignored his message. They could have denied their sin, their need, the relevance of his message to them. But no, they came from all over And not just to hear and listen and observe and critique, but to repent and prepare to make straight their paths that God's long-awaited coming would mean life for them. Verse 7. But when he, that's John, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, so these aren't just the religious left and the religious right, these are leaders of these movements, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
fire. If we were to read this in Luke's version, Luke 3, which is virtually identical, Luke adds a comment at the end saying, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Good news. Always catches my attention. Luke Luke calls John's message good news after he's just talked about fire burning up the chaff. I'm sure many, maybe some of us, hear John's words. It's like, come on, Scott, give me some Christmas joy. What's with all this judgment talk? Fire, the burning up of the chaff. It sounds like bad news, some might feel. Warning of judgment. But John knew the bigger picture, the bigger picture of the world. As did Matthew and Luke, the gospel writers and early disciples of Jesus. They knew that this wasn't a message unique to John the Baptist. This is what God had been speaking about all through the prophets to those who would listen. The promise of a king who would bring righteousness. A promise of a king whose kingdom would mean the refining of the world. Would mean judgment would mean new life. The promise of a day when God would come and once again take the throne of creation and bring all, bring his kingdom in all its fullness on earth as it is in heaven when God would set all things right. A day, a glorious day for which we must be ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. John and Isaiah beckon us, make straight paths for him. And this doesn't seem like a common or popular message these days, which is ironic because we live in a moment that is pulsating with a hunger for justice, right? Just look at your social media and beyond all the the empty (laughs) crap, as someone said, is there not in the midst of it all so often a naming of injustice? a crying out for justice. Maybe sometimes poorly, maybe sometimes it's just um, virtue signaling, all those things. But is there not in our day a pervasive and necessary cry for justice? So it's ironic that we hear that, we feel that you can't be of celebrity these days without having a tagline that says, and this is what I'm passionate about, some sort of justice issue. That is essential. And, and yet in the midst of that, we hear this and we say, ah. And yet in the gospel, we encounter a God who's crying out for justice. And not who is just crying out for it, but who has set a day when he is going to bring it. A day of reckoning, of purging, of judgment, This is essential to the coming of the kingdom, essential to the hope of the gospel, that God will one day make all things right, which means God will put an end to all that is wrong, a decisive end to all the sin and the evil and the corruption, perversion, oppression, deception, destruction that pervades our world, our cultures, our communities, our governments, our systems, and also our own lives. As one pastor author says, to long for the dawning of the light is to long for the casting out of darkness. 
To long for the dawning of the light is to long for the casting out of darkness, utterly, completely, in all things. And whether we realize it or not, if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, you have prayed for this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was listening to a song the other day, and in, in it, it was a song actually somewhat on this theme. In the midst of it, the, the songwriter sings these words, I know, I know, I know that I don't know what I'm asking. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Bring your judgment, bring your justice, God. Because this is what God wants for the world. This is what God has made the world for, to be alive in his justice, his righteousness, his goodness, his tov, the Hebrew word, which kind of connects, Simon, to the word lovely, what you were saying in your prayer before. The word tov, good, has a sense of not just, yeah, it's, it's good, but it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's all that it should be. This is what God has made the world for. This is what God is committed to seeking for the world. It's what our world needs, and it's what we in our bones know that we need. To reference back to N.T. Wright's quote, as we read and listen to the news, as we hear stories of what is happening around the world in Gaza, in Ukraine, in so many other places, in our own city and community, as we get a text from a friend, some of us did this week, asking urgently for prayer, for something that we're facing that we just discovered, as we get honest about our own hearts and lives, we feel the ache, the Advent ache, a deep longing for the coming of the kingdom, for God to come and set all things right, including in us, right? Over the years, I have found myself as a pastor and a preacher, someone who does this, stands up here and opens up God's word. I have found myself um, cut, held by words of John Calvin, the great reformer who once wrote, it is better for a preacher to fall and die on their way to the pulpit than to get up and preach a message they have no intention of obeying. And so I pray the sword of the Spirit, which I long, the word of God, which I long to bring to you as a means of life, I would also let be a means of life to me. That the sword of the Spirit would cut me too. Asking God, week in, week out, season in, season out, to reveal ways in which I need God's sanctifying fire and to lead me to seek it that my life would be purged again and again, continually, of all that which has no part in the kingdom of Jesus. Which is what we hear described in Revelation 21, one of the last chapters of the Bible. A picture that many of us love of what God will ultimately bring about on earth as it is in heaven. When God's kingdom will come in its fullness. When God's will will be done in its fullness in all things. Just as God has promised, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. We talked about this in our study in Genesis. In the ancient imagination, the sea represented the forces of chaos. And the new kingdom, there will be no longer any sea. The forces of chaos will be gone. 
Verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There will no longer be any sea. And so we sing in the Advent and Christmas season, joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What a vital hope that speaks to a longing that is resident in every human heart, at least those that are awake, for a day when God will bring his kingdom, bring justice, vanquish every fiber and fragment of sin and the curse from creation, from the world, and in its place bring shalom, his peace, this is the hope and promise of the second coming of the final advent of Jesus. Day when that is coming when Jesus will reign over all and all things will find their place and find their flourishing in him. But, John the Baptist says, the day of God's coming will only be a joy to those who find their joy in Christ and his kingdom who turn in faith, in repentance today, who align their lives with him today through saying yes to his call to follow him, who submit to him as king today, who say yes to his sanctifying fire, his sanctifying grace today. Repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the gospel of Advent, the good news that the king is coming, so get ready. As I mentioned earlier, in John's day, it's striking. In John's day, according to Matthew and Luke's account, many people, many people heard John's message and responded. Again, to quote N.T. Wright, they knew in their bones that they weren't ready for God to come back. And so they came from all over to repent and prepare, to make straight their ways, that God's coming would mean life for them. And I can't help but think that in this moment, this is true for many of us, that we know in our bones, sure we're in church, but that is not the revelation. We know in our bones as we sit right here that our lives are deeply out of sync with God and his will and his ways. And not necessarily that all, we are all caught up in gross perversity or immorality, deception, or unfaithfulness, greed, or malice, though that is likely the case for some of us, and we know it. But others, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it may seem subtle, quiet, unseen, maybe even cloaked in religious activity, but it is still so real and so true. Our hearts, and therefore our lives, whether that's our pursuits, our passions, our imagination, our longings, our relationships, our habits, how we engage at work, 
our hearts and therefore our lives are out of sync with God and we know it in our bones. But just as John called all on the left and on the right and everywhere in the middle, he calls us today, all of us, on the left and on the right and everywhere in the middle to come, to repent, to turn from ourselves to God and his ways that what was spoken of the Christians in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, would be said of us that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, the coming judgment, the coming justice of God. This is a really helpful verse, a really helpful description of what it means and looks like to be converted and to be living in a way of repentance, to turn to God from idols, to serve the living God, and to wait for his son. And what strikes me is this last quality, how significant that is as an indicator of our faith, of God's saving work in us, that we long for the coming of Jesus. We long for the coming of Jesus to reign over all, including in us. And I would dare to say that if our hearts do not long for the coming of Jesus, for his rescue and his reign in the world, then we have not yet been converted. And we desperately need to turn to God today. And not just to turn and believe, right? But to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I am stunned how often I sit with women and men over the years who say to me, oh, I'm a Christian, but it's just an idea in their head that they've held has nothing to do with Tuesday or Wednesday night. And in those moments, I am challenged, what part of my life has nothing to do with Jesus and his reign? The invitation is to not just turn and believe, but to turn and produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which doesn't mean to do things to earn God's grace. That is not how this works. No one earns God's grace. Grace is not something anyone earns. Grace is God's gift to those who bow and confess, I cannot do this. I cannot earn this. I don't deserve this. I need you to save me. I need you to give birth to a new life in me. I need you to reign on the throne of me, of my life, of my heart, of my affections, of my desires, of my pursuits, of my relationships, and the people I'm avoiding. And as we do that, it starts to show. True repentance always ultimately shows. Produce fruit in keeping with in keeping with repentance, to seek to know and let the ways of the kingdom, the desires and concerns and ways of Jesus shape our desires and concerns and ways, which is what all the sobering parables later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24 and 25, are all about. It's a whole succession of them. The parables of the ten virgins, the sheep and the goats, the masters and the servants, they all describe this reality that although many may claim to be children of the kingdom, the question is, are our lives bowed to the king? Because though many may long for heaven, 
question is, do we long for Jesus? To submit to Jesus, because that is what heaven is about. And if your vision of heaven does not involve the Jesus being on the throne of all things, then your vision of heaven is not Christian or biblical. Though many may long to get to heaven, they do not long to submit to Jesus. And I'll personalize that. Though we may long to get to heaven, we may not long to submit to Jesus. And that is what heaven is all about. That is where the flourishing comes. But if we already experienced that life, which is what God longs for us, he says to us now, come. Come follow me. John's language is repent and turn. Jesus' language is come, follow me. They both mean the same thing. You cannot come follow him unless you turn to him from following yourself or whoever it is you're following. And the grace of God, this is the hope of the gospel and this is the invitation of Advent to us through the gift of our Advent prophet, John the Baptist. To not just celebrate that Jesus once came, nor to simply prepare well for Christmas morning, but the invitation to repent and prepare in hope for Jesus to be king, for his grace and for his return. But that by turning in worship to worship and serve him today, our lives might experience the grace of his refining fire, his justice in us today. Man, we need this. I'm a pastor, and so when I hear stories of pastors who've become jerks. <laughs> it hits me. I'm sure it hits everybody because it stains the reputation of the church. But the church needs today the fire of God's justice burning in our hearts. The church needs today women and men, young and old, who will bow to Jesus and let God renew our hearts. Not just our ideas, though that, yes, but our lives that we might be women and men who today live in Jesus and on into his kingdom come. So let me conclude with a simple but searching question. Some of you, I don't even need to say this. If Jesus were to show up on your doorstep this afternoon or tomorrow and spend the day with you, spend the night with you, spend the week with you, doing what you normally do, with you, where would he see his will being sought and celebrated or at least hungered for? And where would he not? Where would Jesus see the need? Where would Jesus see the need for his sanctifying grace in you, his refining fire? And if something is coming to mind, Jesus is bringing it to mind because he loves you not to beat you down, to cast you out, but to invite you today to open that door or all the doors to him. To draw on the metaphors of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, what roads in you need straightening out? What dead thing in you needs to be cut down and thrown out? What fruit needs to be sown and cultivated? Where in your life what in your life needs to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Because that's the part of the gospel of this. It isn't merely that John shows up and says, stop it, turn around. 
He says, one is coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, that repentance is God's gift to those who bow. He gives the Spirit to lead us and empower us to do what we have not been able to do. Let's pray. I know I stopped abruptly, but I don't think I need to say anything more. Let's just bow before God and speak what our heart needs to say, and I will lead us in prayer as well. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for your great love for us, your great love for the world. Thank you, God, that Advent is not simply about the arrival of a baby and a story that is warm and comforting, but the coming of our holy and good and glorious, lovely God, whose will and kingdom is the best thing for the world and also for us. Jesus, it is a gift to have you take the throne for this is what we have been made. You have made the world to flourish alive with your joy and goodness and glory when it finds its place bowed before you with you as our center and our source. And so we bow to you right here. Holy Spirit, would you continue to search our hearts and lead us to confession and repentance with hope for your spirit to be at work in this. Lord, where we feel grief today in our own being, where we find ourselves broken by our own sin or habits or desires that are outside of you. Oh God, would you sow in us hope that your revelation in, is to the end of leading us to life, that we would come running with hope, God, for your grace. That by the grace of your spirit, as we follow you, we would find our paths made straight in you and for you, oh Lord. In the season of Advent, lead us to our knees.